Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Kathleen Bell, Professor and Chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UT Southwestern Medical Center and Dr. Nahid Bedelia, an Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at Boston University School of Medicine and Founding Director of the BU Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases Policy and Research. We'll be discussing long COVID. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Bell, I'd like to begin with you. In the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, you established a long COVID clinic at your institution. Can you talk about what you anticipated seeing with the lingering aspects of this virus and what you aimed to provide for your clinic? When we first started this clinic, we were looking at reports coming out of Europe and on the East Coast of what was happening in terms of some of the really severe disease trajectories that we were seeing with people with ventilation, pulmonary disorders, et cetera. So when we actually opened this clinic, we honestly were expecting to see people who had been spending substantial amount of times in intensive care units with pretty significant pulmonary disease, with all of the problems that one brings from long periods of immobility in the intensive care unit, deconditioning, cardiac deconditioning, muscle loss, all of the psychological sequelae from that. So that's what we were thinking we were going to see when we actually started that, this clinic. And what we were hoping to provide were, was really rehabilitation to help people get back to optimize their life and, and anticipating that we were going to be spending a lot of time on cardiopulmonary disorders. However, I, I have to say that, you know, what has played out over the couple of years we've been doing this now is that we are seeing, um, for the most part, a very different group of people than we expected to see. And I, I might would be surprised if, if this isn't the case with really every long COVID program. We're really seeing the majority of our patients are folks that have not been hospitalized. They may have had moderate effects from the, the infection, but they actually weathered it at home. And then they're not getting better at the pace you would expect someone to get better from a viral illness that was treated in a home setting. So what we are actually doing now is a little bit different than we thought we'd be doing. We're spending a lot more time on, while we're certainly working on approaches to cardiorespiratory rehabilitation, most of us have changed our pathway to that a little bit and are, are, are kind of changing the, the flavor of how we approach that. And we're seeing a lot more problems with cognition and other sorts of ensuing psychological disorders, which are, are really secondary to, we think, the inflammation that's involved with the disease itself. We're seeing a lot more subtle peripheral neuropathic disease and some interesting sensory phenomenon with our patients, So, uh, as well as some, some degree of autonomic dysfunction. I see you nodding, Dr. Bedelia. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of patients auto, autonomic dysfunction as well. And this, the question of, of that presentation that's been debilitating for a percentage of our patients. So 
definitely seeing some of those same features that you spoke about, Dr. Bell. Well, as you were discussing, and as we've seen with virtually all aspects of this novel coronavirus, the medical and public health community are continuing to learn how it spreads, how it manifests itself, what the long-term symptoms and challenges are. Can you tell us some of the key things that you know today that you didn't know two years ago and things that have really particularly surprised you? With regard to long COVID in particular, I, I, I think that it is a what it's shown us over the last two years is that we expect a percentage of patients who are critically ill, who are in hospital, who are in the ICU to have post-ICU syndrome um, mm-hmm. and to continue on to have a long road to recovery after that. But what's been surprising is to see a percentage of folks who haven't had severe you know, infections, a smaller percentage than those who have been severely ill, who also have that persistent sort of you know, debilitating symptoms going outward. And we're still trying to understand what long COVID is. And I think I've, I've mentioned this before, which is that the, the difficulty is that there hasn't been a unifying case definition and there may not be one. I mean, I think what we're discovering is that there's a group of patients who have this persistent symptoms that's from the initial critical illness. There are those who are just having, you know, who had just the upper respiratory infection symptoms and now are just seeing a persistence, just dragging on of the symptoms from their acute illness. And then, a population of patients who are discovering new findings and new complaints right after their recovery. Maybe their initial course was not that difficult and, and, and things like difficulty finding words, some of the cognitive things that Dr. Bell talked about, the autonomic dysfunction, finding that potentially that there might be a bucket of syndromes, you know, is something that it's relatively becoming a bit more fleshed out. I think the difficulty here though, is that we, not having that unifying case definition, having no biomarkers, and a lot of those being driven more by clinical presentation, it's been sort of difficult to get the scope, the hands around what the entire scope of this disease would be. And the thing that we do know, which is good news, more and more studies are now showing that if you're vaccinated, the chances of developing long COVID at least halves. It's it's you know at least dropped by fifty percent. Now we've had about ten studies that have that have shown that, and that's that's very good news and sort of talks to us about the importance of continuing to push vaccination to to the communities that potentially the uptake is not as high. The number of people, I think, is is something that's surprising. There is a long COVID dashboard that I think my specialty society, the AAPMNR, has up where they're calculating for counties and states um, how many people have long COVID symptoms. And it's astonishing. I mean, it's just astonishing. And if you look at the wait to get into our clinics, I think it's astonishing. You know, no matter how many people we see, there's more and more waiting to be seen. It's so I think the overwhelming number of people that have these long symptoms are are pretty astonishing, considering I think all our experience with with other viruses. I'll be really interested to hear Dr. Bedelia's take on that. This affects a lot of things, not only the individual, but, you know, this affects employment. I mean, so many of our patients are struggling to get back to full-time employment or employment at all. It's affecting, you know, family function. I think we're not taking a lot of that into account is how long it's taking people to get back on their feet again. And the other thing that, that kind of astonishes me is that this just doesn't get discussed very much still. So when I when I heard someone being interviewed two days ago on national news about you know the state of COVID and 
you know, they were talking about the variants and the potential surge and this and that, and not a word about what was happening with long COVID, which, which again, took me back a little bit. If you're going to kind of give a, a state of what's going on with COVID, it seems to me you should be talking about not only the acute infections, but the big picture. Absolutely. And Dr. Bedelia, I'm so glad that you mentioned the data now showing that vaccination can significantly reduce the risk of long COVID. It's one more great reason that everyone should get vaccinated. Dr. Bell, you mentioned that you're seeing patients in your long COVID clinic who have problems with cognition, interesting sensory phenomenon, autonomic dysfunction, and several other symptoms. Are there any other things you can tell us about some of the most common symptoms that you're seeing in your clinic? I think overwhelmingly the most common symptom is fatigue and, and it's in its impressive fatigue. It's not, gee, I'm a little tired today. It's, it's really impressive fatigue where people are, are truly not able to physically or, or cognitively for that matter, do the activities that they would normally do in a day without, without really incurring the cost. And, and I'm impressed at this. It's not, I, I you know, I know people say, oh, just get over it. I, they cannot. It's, it's a real thing. It's a real phenomenon. So I think that's by and far the most common symptom. And I would say the second are the cognitive complaints that people have are, are probably the second most common. Third is probably the issue with dizziness and, and some of the autonomic symptoms we're seeing with some periodic tachycardia. Um, and uh, uh, along with that, probably after that, while we're seeing people who have frank neuropathies have have you know frank mononeuritis multiplex or or other types of neuropathies we're also seeing people who have you know really interesting sensory phenomenon crawly creepy crawlies lightning strike things in their legs and usually in their in their limbs more more than any place else you know modeling that sometimes goes along with that so we we really are seeing some kind of peripheral neuropathic issues that are different than your typical peripheral neuropathies as well. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Tlachwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 real-time learning network forward slash COVID health equity resources. Dr. Bedelia, can you talk about the similarities and differences between the lingering aspects of this virus and other viruses that you've studied or treated? I know Dr. Bell mentioned it seems like long COVID symptoms appear to be more persistent and longer lasting than those of other viruses. So we'd love to hear your take. Most people would be surprised to know that there are so many viruses that have prolonged persistent symptoms after recovery. And for some, it is actually a matter of months. You know, so I'll give you well-known recent examples. You know, I, I, I was part of, the, I work on filovirus, viral hemorrhagic fevers a lot. And so I worked in the past with Ebola virus disease uh, patients extensively, both survivors and those who are acutely ill. And, you know, that's a perfect example of a disease that we've known about since 1976. And it wasn't until the West African Ebola virus disease epidemic where, you know, over 20,000 people were affected, where you got this two standard deviations, the bell curve of understanding of how that virus manifests and thousands of Ebola survivors 
had persistent symptoms, you know, months out. And, and there, you know, it seems to be the pathophysiology seems to be twofold. You have the same kind of neurological symptoms, psychological symptoms, myalgias, arthralgias, uh, vision issues, but also discovery that part of it was because the virus can survive in immune privileged sites. And by the way, one of the hypotheses for SARS-CoV-2 is that there might be persistence of virus of some sort in some pockets of, of, uh, of the human body that we haven't, you know, that we are not able to clear. And then it's eliciting some sort of immune response or having, having those symptoms. But there's so many other viruses, right? Alpha viruses like Ross River uh, virus, which causes arthralgias and, and arthritis, you know, for months afterwards. Chikungunya, another alpha virus that um, plagues so, it's a mosquito-borne virus that affects so many Latin American countries. And, and the concern there, and just harken back to what Dr. Bell said, you know, the big concern with chikungunya, for example, a virus that initially has those, you know, influenza-like illness presentations. And then um, for and and sort of almost as a malaria type presentation, right? And fevers, chills, and then a lot of just muscle pains, back pains, fatigue that lasts for months. And this question of economic productivity comes up, right? When so many people are affected by a virus, and, and many Latin American countries have sort of questioned this idea of like, okay, there's the epidemic after the epidemic. And in the case of chikungunya, the concern was that most of the people who were affected were people who were working outside who were, you know, protected members, workers who couldn't protect themselves from mosquitoes. Why am I bringing it up? Because the same kind of question comes up with SARS-CoV-2, where so many of our frontline workers, you know, non-healthcare worker, professional, you know, workers who are out, who couldn't stay at home during the pandemic, who were exposed to this virus. What does this mean if they too were, you know, uh, disproportionately affected compared to those of us who had the luxury to be able to stay? And that means that that's, that's going to lead, as Dr. Bell said, to economic productivity for them, for their ability to continue doing the work that they're doing for their health, for their families. And those implications, I don't think, have been realized. You know, we, we don't have good estimates. You know, I think they're of what, how, how much of this long COVID is out there, partly because, again, the case definition has been so varied. But I think you'll see numbers between 10% of the population to higher numbers and 20 to 30% of the population. I think it's probably closer to 10%. But I, I think Dr. Bell could probably tell you that more than I could because she's closer to the ground. But one thing I will say is that in each of these viruses, the question always comes up, why don't we know as about, a lot about these post-acute viral syndromes? So recently, again, another example, EBV, you know, Epstein-Barr virus was found to have a connection to multiple sclerosis. And now there's both epidemiological proof as well as mechanistic, potential mechanistic reason for why, which is an autoimmune antibody that might have that impact. We don't know a lot about, a lot about these post-viral syndromes because we don't expend the energy to study them. Many times the systems aren't there to capture both the, the experience of the patient in the clinic as well as the experience of the population. So getting epidemiological and population level data, and that's going to be so important here because so many people worldwide have been affected by SARS-CoV-2. And now that we're defanging, the in the acute setting, defanging the virus, the question is going to be what's the cost of the infection itself? And long COVID seems to be one of the costs of the infection itself. You know, I think you're right. I absolutely misspoke when I said that. And as soon as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, Epstein-Barr, how could I forget that? But, um, but I think maybe there are a couple of things. One is that I don't think that first world countries have been walloped by a virus in the same way. And I think so many of the viruses that you brought up, honestly, have been in countries that are less 
less on the front page, perhaps the New York Times, right, on a daily basis. And I think that's one of the things that there hasn't been this attention to, but also it's just the volume. It's just the volume. And I honestly don't think we're going to be seeing really the total cost of this pandemic for some years to come in terms of the cost of health, the cost to mortality, and the cost to productivity, I think are going to be substantial and are going to be over some years. Dr. Bedelia, you're involved in a large NIH-funded study of long COVID. Can you tell us about that study and about your work specifically? Sure. I'm uh, one of the principal investigators uh, at Boston Medical Center for NIH's Recover cohort or initiative. It's a multi-center national study that NIH has put together to uh, to really create a you know a bi-directional cohort to help understand the experience of those who've already had the infection, who are um, sort of now being affected, as well as those who are getting infected and moving forward. And these are patients that are followed temporally um, and and agnostically being observed for um, not just any symptoms that they have, but any med- new medical complications that may develop. And the the goal of it is to do exactly what I said at the very beginning, is to really capture the full scope in a standardized way with the same tools across different hospitals. And and, and interestingly enough, you know, what I think Recover has the power to potentially also do is to continue to form this community of, of intellectual exchange between providers, between researchers to quickly recognize phenomenon and share that, you know, and because one of the, the most critical things to my mind right now that's needed is, is identification of a good standard of care of how these patients should be cared for, right? Of, of really trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work, what's effective, what's helping people, what does this look like in different people? And, and I think this connection between research and the clinical care that's already happening out there is going to be important. The other thing that I'm part of, and the co-director of the Massachusetts Coalitions for Pathogen Readiness is Long COVID Working Group. And there we're looking at the problem from not just the clinical aspects, but we're also doing work on health equity uh, and understanding, at least within Massachusetts, how the division and the burden of this long COVID uh, manifestation occurs in different communities, particularly those who are historically disadvantaged. You know, we just spoke about but the frontline workers and the effect and who were the frontline workers, at least in you know Massachusetts, many other communities, these rare folks, they were economically disadvantaged and people from Black, Indigenous and communities of color. And so understanding that, and then lastly, understanding in autoimmunity and inflammation, which we think might play a big role in long COVID, but we don't, we don't know yet that yet. And I have to say that I think it's really important to have an ongoing study like this, because I think that, you know, one of the, we've been involved in a, in a CDC phenotyping study, which hopefully will be out relatively soon. But the problem with doing kind of those retrospective pictures, they're helpful in many ways in terms of helping us at least define a little bit better what we're talking about when we're talking about long COVID. The problem is that people ask me all the time, well, you know, are you seeing the same thing with Omicron that you're seeing with Alpha? Are you seeing the same thing with B2? And we don't know yet. I mean, we just don't know. And clearly there were different acute infections or at least different manifestations of the acute infections. And we don't really know whether that's going to change the picture of long COVID yet or not. So I think that 
that, you know, again, long-term studies that go on over a number of years are really going to be important for helping us look at both the trajectories and the different classes and characteristics. The Biden administration recently announced several efforts aimed at ramping up research around long COVID, including increasing efforts to improve enrollment in the NIH study, potentially creating an interagency task force to coordinate uh, long COVID efforts across the federal government. What are your thoughts on these efforts? What do you think is really most needed and would be most impactful? It's important to have substantial enrollment in the prospective NIH study. I really do, because I, uh, that's, that's really going to be an answer in terms of the, the full picture of what we're looking at. And it's, it's very difficult to, to try to, you know, again, being on the ground, actually treating patients on a day-to-day basis, it, you know, it's very hard to know what's right. And if you look at the literature right now, it's all over the place, right? I mean, everybody has papers out. There's 25 patients in this study. There's 30 in this study. And it's like, you know, all single institutions, we have no clue, really. So, I, you know, it's a, right now, it's a very common sense approach to, you know, responding to symptomatic management uh, at this point, I think more than anything, because knowing, uh, you know, what to do in terms of impacting the pathophysiology is still is still out there. Yeah, I think the three things that the the Biden, the White House plan sort of looks at is one is um, it tries to bring together an intergovernmental response to this, right? It's, it's our intragovernmental response to this. It's aligning all the powers within different agencies to try to work on this problem because it is the next challenge in this pandemic. The second, as, as Dr. Bell said, the importance of, of both the recover, include, you know, increasing recruitment and recover and other aspects, and but as well as other research, you know, different aspects. You know, I'm, I'm guessing the equity access, the, the provider uptake and research on what's the best way to get this information out to providers and things like that. What I think is one of the most important parts of this is supporting the patients. And one of the things that the, the initiative sort of calls for is this idea of in, ensuring that insurance coverage is present for those seeking care for long COVID issues. You know, you hear stories about uh, because there's no established standard of care, it leaves an opportunity for health insurance companies to say, deny claims that they, they, they say, well, that's not necessarily part of standard care, but that's evolving, right? And, and you, what you don't want is stories like that potentially keep people from seeking care because they're afraid of getting stuck with a big bill. And, you know, because they're particularly, let's say, if you're somebody who, who is already economically disadvantaged that we've just, just talked about, right? So you can see the double burden that this would place. And, and what I saw from was some of the announcements from, from the initiative where that there was going to be a lot of concentration in trying to cover those costs or trying to do health insurance sort of support to ensure that people who are seeking this care are given the medical care that they need. And if I might say, I think some support for actually having those services available. I, I, again, I can't say enough that there aren't enough of us who are doing this, this uh, work in, in, in long COVID. And so we, we literally, you know, have people waiting until July and August for appointments right now. We have all hands on deck trying to take care of people. So I, I think it's, you know, being able to support the growth of some of those services to provide care, rehabilitation, all of that sort of thing for these folks is really going to be important in the long run. And I think that I'm seeing some steps towards that in this bill. So I'm very happy to see it. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Bell and Bedelia for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on COVID-19. I'm Amanda Jesek.
The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.